Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 44. It's the run-up to Operation Skeptic in 1980, or what many folks call Ops Smokeshell. That's because the main target, Chifufua, was codenamed Smokeshell, or QFL, depending on which report you read. But there were other targets too. But before that operation, there were a few other incidents across the fighting front. One involved a formation of impalas armed with rockets that ended up strafing what they thought was a Swapo position in Ovambalan. However, when they were debriefed, it was clear they'd entered into Angolan territory and shot up an unknown location inside Angola. It began at 0900 on the 27th of February, inside the AFB on Dungwa briefing room. The SA Air Force were informed that South African Defence Force patrols had spotted vehicles just north of the cutline between Oshikango, or Beacon 18, and Ianhana, Beacon 30. Impala pilot commander Stain Fenter and his number two Henry Jackson were tasked to fly an armed reconnaissance mission just south of the cutline to assess whether Swapo had crossed into southwest Africa. They duly took off and scouted the area. Shortly afterwards, a second pair of Impalas, flown by Kubus Turin and Vic Kayser, joined them, and they ended up flying what was called a divisional battle formation between Ianhana and Oshikango, that is pairs of aircraft flying around 800 meters apart. The cloud base was low at 500 feet. It was still rainy season after all, and rain was falling in the east of their position. Then they spotted smoke to the north and headed off to investigate. The turn was tight, and they appeared to have lost touch with their exact position. As they flew over the smoke, they saw people scattering in all directions. There was no village, so they immediately suspected Swapu, and Fenter turned sharply once more, keeping the smoke in sight, then ordered the formation to select rockets and follow him as he pitched up. He was still only 400 feet above ground level, then descended steeply once more, firing rockets at the source of the smoke. Each Impala was armed with 24 68mm rockets. As they pulled up, there were secondary explosions. They'd hit something. Then the battle formation flew back to Ndangwa. Later, during the debriefing, it became clear that they'd flown into Angola. It was a big no-no politically, and there was some explaining to do. These kind of incidents were being reported by patrols on the ground as well, where they'd come under attack and then be forced to halt follow-ups at the border, increasing the frustration of the troops. Anyone who's fought across borders knows this frustration. The enemy is a few hundred meters away and virtually staring at you, and strategically to cross the line would be to create an international incident. American soldiers fighting in Vietnam spoke often of this, the border with Laos and Cambodia, for example, where special forces were forbidden from following Viet Cong into these international territories. Although they did. All those in Afghanistan looking across the border into Pakistan. By now, the command of the SADF had been handed over to General Konstant Falyun, and he was monitoring the upsurge in plan activity. Swapu's armed wing had already launched an attack into the Triangle of Death that we heard about last week, and there had been two other major contacts during January 1980. First on the 20th, where two security force soldiers were killed in a firefight. Then, less than a fortnight later, six soldiers died and 19 planned insurgents were killed in another clash inside of Ombaland. By the 15th of February, 77 planned insurgents had been killed along with three more security force members. The casualty list was growing quickly on both sides. Later in February, as you've heard already, Plan launched another attack into the Triangle, killing two white civilians. 19 of these attackers were killed, and another security force tracker also died. By the end of the first week of March, Plan was heading back to Avambaland after killing another soldier when they were ambushed and 11 died, three at the hands of the local Avamba people themselves. In the meantime, 
Jonas Sabimbi of UNITA sent a letter on the 6th of March outlining his view of a possible settlement of the Angolan civil war. UN officials and South African government representatives were sitting down to constitutional talks in Vintuk when Savimbi's letter was delivered to P.W. Boto, who was in Cape Town. The UNITA leader demanded to be included in any negotiations regarding a demilitarized zone because it was he and not Luanda who controlled the Angolan South, the so-called shallow area across the cutline in which the no-go was supposed to be established. Sabimbi also let it be known that he was against any new intervention of foreign forces into Angola, having spent the last decade fighting the Portuguese and then the Soviets and the Cubans. He was holding out for a deal that cut his UNITA into any Angolan settlement. Then, in his letter, Sabimbi threatened the safety of the UN force directly. Pretoria welcomed Savimbi's letter. It played into the overall political strategy of slowing down Namibian independence, so they naturally released it locally and internationally. Back in the hot zone, Plan continued to launch mortar attacks on SADF bases, and the South Africans responded with Operation Rekstok and Safran in Zambia, as you've heard. The armed movement seemed to be operating wherever it wished, and in May 1980 they increased their insurgency dramatically. During one contact in Avambaland, the SADF lost five men to Plans 81, while the Ondangwa Air Force Base came under mortar attack. Although damage was limited, Plans seemed to be able to strike anywhere at will, including one of the most heavily defended South African bases in Southwest Africa. But there was another attack at this time which was not mentioned by the South Africans publicly, which would go down in the annals of 3-2 Battalion as one of the most deadly and all because of an apparent misunderstanding. This was a secret mission by 3-2 into Angola to strike a small town called Savati on the Kubanga River. By early 1980, Fapla had held all the small towns along the Kubanga as far north as Kalundo. If you recall, they had a small corridor along the west coast and used their logistic support there to clear a zone along the cutline heading east. But Unita controlled the far east zone. Fapla controlled the west. Unita was fighting for the Kubanga River. Up to the end of 1979, UNITA had deployed a scorched-earth policy against all towns and territory captured from FAPLA. They had torched the villages and drive them out, knowing that these civilians were helping FAPLA with intelligence information. UNITA would usually burn everything, blow things up, and then retreat back to their lair at Jamba, which is in the far east corner of Angola, just north of the Caprivi southwest of Zambia. But in 1980, Jonas Savimi decided his men would capture the towns and hold them. So, on the 14th of April, Unita took Konga on the Kabanga River, literally on the border. This marked the beginning of a new phase in Unita's strategy, where they planned to hold the entire southern Angolan region, if possible. Savimbi then approached the SADF and asked for assistance in attacking Savati to drive Fapla further northwest up the river. It was one of their main bases 75 kilometers inside Angola. As you're going to hear, the South Africans were led to believe it was lightly defended but it wasn't. Savati was further upstream on the same Kobanga River as Kwanga and Sabimbi suggested it was an ideal target for 3-2 Battalion. Now remember, 3-2 and UNITA were not friends. Many members of 3-2 were former members of the FNLA, which had fought UNITA, so there was no love lost between these two, although they regarded the MPLA as a mutual enemy. In charge of 3-2 was Commandant Ferreira, who was provisionally ordered to plan an attack based on UNITA intelligence, that an understrength battalion of around 300 FAPLA was stationed at that base in Savati. The SADF knew that Savati was also home to FAPLA's brigade headquarters, 
which could call on two more battalions deployed even further upstream at Kaunda, so any attack had to be sudden and swift. The ever-aggressive 3-2 leader immediately set to work and planned an assault force of three rifle companies, one to be held in reserve, a mortar platoon and 3-2's reconnaissance teams acting as stopper groups. The latter were going to be very busy in the secret op, as you're going to hear. Because it was so far upstream, and because there were two other FAPLA battalions lurking nearby, the attack on Savati had to rely on complete surprise. There would be no air support softening up. Pumas, though, were on standby at Rundu to evacuate casualties, and a Bosbok spotter plane would also be around on the day. On the 13th of May, 1980, the assault group gathered at Omauni, around 130 kilometers east of Ianhana, and just out of sight of the main road, the C-45. The 270 men from the rifle companies, along with six recce teams and mortar groups, would be taken across by road. The column included a number of 10-ton trucks, four Buffel armoured personnel carriers, three cargo trucks carrying ammunition, rations and equipment, and Pereira's command vehicle. An intelligence officer was included and they were ready to go. Hanging out with 3-2 at this point was a UNITA agent, a man known as Senor Lobs, or Francisco Lopez, who worked for the SADF Chief of Staff Intelligence. He told Ferreira that he knew Savate intimately and would guide the assault force to the base. Ferreira was thorough and used direct, simple methods. First, the mortar platoon would bombard the base with both high-explosive and white phosphorus bombs from four kilometers south of Savate using the 81 millimeters. Alpha and Foxtrot companies would attack from the west, the left, and push the enemy towards the river. Savati was on the west bank of the Kubango, which could be both swift-flowing and treacherous. Crocodiles lurked in the shallows. The defenders would be squeezed between the river and 3-2, and would have to retreat northwards. Two platoons of Charlie Company under the command of Lieutenant Sam Heap would attack Plan's vehicle park northwest of the airfield, which was two kilometers outside the town. Reconnaissance photographs showed that there were no troops deployed there. The rest would focus their attention on the trench system surrounding Savati. A third platoon would be held in reserve. First, though, Ferreira needed proper intel, so before receiving the green light from SADF headquarters, he sent Lieutenant Willem Ratter's reconnaissance team to Savati to confirm the photo information. Senor Lobs and a second UNITA guy joined the recce platoon from Amauni, being driven north through the night of the 17th of May, and dropped supposedly at a point northwest upstream of Savati, and also supposedly close to the Kabanga River. Senor Lobs left the wreckies with a second guide, and he returned to Amauni. Alarm bells began to ring after this team walked through the night of the 17th all the way to daybreak, then laid up at dawn on the 18th. They couldn't move during the day, of course. Still no sign of the Kabanga River, although their guide continued to point east. At dusk, they continued heading east, carrying their kayaks, and after a six-hour march, reached the river. The guide indicated downstream and said Savati lay seven kilometers in that direction, but he seemed confused. After another five hours of paddling down the river, they reached a small town on the west bank, which they thought was Savati, and the wreckies laid up for the day. Rata then decided to try and enter the town to figure out what was going on, so after sunset of the 19th, he and three other Rekis stepped ashore and found the settlement was deserted. Not even a chicken in sight, writes Pete Norke in his book about 3-2. Instead of being dropped upstream or northwest of Savati, they'd been dropped downstream, southeast. Senor Lobs was partly to blame as he'd led the initial landing. 
The unsuspecting wreckies had rowed downstream and arrived at the long-abandoned town of Pande, which is around 10 kilometres south of Savati. The paddle back upriver felt more like 20 kilometres and was made at speed because Ferreira had told Rata that the attack on Savati was set for the 21st of May. So at 2300 on the 19th of May, the wreckies slipped their kayaks back into the water and spent the entire night rowing upstream, including negotiating a dangerous stretch of rapids. They reached the outskirts of Savati at first light. The wreckies pulled their kayaks out of sight and laid up once more, this time on the east bank. They could hear vehicles moving around constantly to the north, and they knew that the town and the base must be occupied. As fate would have it, and at about the same time as they waited, the main assault force moved out of Amouni overland under the guidance of the very same Senor Lobs. They followed the same route as the Rekis, but were aiming at a point some distance further east of Savati so that they could proceed more quietly on foot, and it was now that the shambolic navigation cost the battalion. Ratajsi could not get a message to Ferreira quickly enough, passing on the request to delay the attack by 24 hours until he had done a proper recon. The assault force was already so close to Savati that had they held off an attack at this point, they'd have been discovered. The entire battle plan was based on the assault force being on foot before the last light of 20th of May and moving rapidly to attack on the 21st. Rata and his rekis were now spying on the town of Savati from close range and they were picking up some worrying signs. As darkness fell on the night of the 20th, Rata, along with Sergeant Piet van Eerden and Corporal Paolo, slipped into Savati to pinpoint enemy troop deployments, defences and mortar positions. He spotted the trench system that Junita had pointed out in photographs, but then he discovered the Fapla force was way larger than an understrength battalion. They were well in excess of battalion strength. He estimated over 1,000, and he was not far wrong. Worse was to follow. Rata also identified a strong point of Fapla troops deployed north of the airfield and at the vehicle park. It was a whopping great 14.5mm anti-aircraft gun that could be swiveled horizontally, as you know. This was a can of worms. Rata could not reach the assault force by radio, so this fresh intelligence was not relayed. Instead, he led his men back to the prearranged position outside Savate to wait for the assault force. First light of May 21st came D-Day, still no sign of 3-2 battalion. Apparently, Senor Lobs had struck once again. When the column arrived supposedly at the crossroads where they'd climb off the vehicles on the 19th of May, they found themselves instead in an open china or water hole the guide had led them 16 kilometers northwest of Sabati to a china called Dos Elevantos. Senor Lobs was relegated to the back of a truck as Ferreira hauled out his compass and turned east, finding the road to Sabati, about 15 kilometers north of the town. They trundled down the road, still in their vehicles, until around 8 kilometers from the town, when they leapt off the buffles and cargo trucks to cover the last part on foot. The vehicles moved 10 kilometers away, they had moved back once they heard the mortar bombardment begin to give support. Each troop carried at least one 81mm bomb over the last stretch to the assembly point from where the mortar crews would move their tubes and 200 mortar bombs themselves to the launch position. So at 0200 hours on the 21st of May, the force began moving towards Sabati in single file with Charlie and another company on the left shoulder of the road while the third company and the headquarters and a second recce team and mortar platoon moved on the right. There was no moon. The bush was dense, so the march took longer than anticipated. Troops were holding on to each other to avoid getting lost, 
and it became clear that Savati would not be reached. It was just too dark and too slow, so Ferreira ordered a halt until first light. The original timetable was now torn up, and they were acting on their own initiative and timing. Things then went from worse to terrible, because the assault group ran slap-bang into a Fapla vehicle patrol seven kilometres from Savati, and five of the enemy escaped. They were going to raise the alarm, and there went the element of surprise. Instead of turning around, Ferreira decided to speed up, and by 0900 the mortars were in position. The ten three-man recce teams were sent as stopper groups to the north, and luckily at that moment, Rutter's messages were finally delivered. The information was disturbing. Savati was more heavily defended than they thought, and yet they had to attack immediately. So the 81mm mortars opened up, drawing an immediate counter-bombardment. Fapla was wide awake. The five men had alerted the base. The rifle companies who were heavily armed then advanced towards the Savati trenches. As they ran, they dodged the Fapla mortars exploding around them and machine gun rounds flying about the felt. At the airfield, two platoons from Charlie Company took on a full Fapla air defense company, which was using their 14.5mm gun horizontally, raking the ground with the large caliber rounds. The first salvo from this weapon killed three Charlie Company troops on the spot and seriously wounded four others. At the main base, Fapla had let rip with everything they had at the rifle companies, who were now also pinned down. Remember, there was no air support. This was going to be a close call. Ferreira was lying prone, and moments later, his intelligence officer was shot dead two meters from where he lay. It took a Herculean effort, but one of the assault companies managed to break through into the trenches, and hand-to-hand fighting took place. Meanwhile, at the airfield, Heap's platoons were taking more casualties, and he radioed Ferreira, saying he needed to retreat. Orders were issued for the platoons to break off engagement and report to the main assault force as reserves. The airfield was still in Fapla hands for the moment. It was chaos. The vehicles which had been waiting to pick up the SADF troops after the battle now drove up to Savati from the north and straight into the waiting Fapla forces who opened fire on the trucks. The wounded lay close by awaiting loading as the truck teams fired back. The vehicle force was now fighting off Fapla and they were cut off from their main assault force to the south. This battle stalemate continued until around midday, and then the shooting died down. Fapla had not been dislodged from their trenches around the town, despite the hand-to-hand, face-to-face fighting. At least, that's what was thought initially. Then, Rutter and his recce spotted a large group of Fapla moving on foot along the road northwards. The worst-case scenario, some of the attackers were carrying 122mm single-tube rocket launchers, and they were obviously trying to head out of town. But the escaping Fapla troops had no idea that lurking in the bush alongside the road was the recce stopper group. Rata's men opened up and Fapla scattered. Ferreira then figured out from the yelling on the Fapla radio that the brigade commander was trying to arrange an organised withdrawal northwards despite his men being in superior positions in the town and the trenches. Even though by now the Fapla commander must have heard the gunfire to the north, he still proceeded with his plan and used vehicles. This was bad news for the Angolans, because the Bosbok spotter plane, which had been circling overhead, picked up the convoy of around 30 vehicles loaded with troops leaving Savati. It was a confused situation, to put it mildly, because Ferreira at that moment received an emergency call to report that Operations Officer Captain Charles Muller had gone missing. After ordering four buffles to prep quickly to follow Fapla, he issued orders for Muller to be found. The reserve company under Staff Sergeant Ron Gregory piled into the Buffles with Ferreira in the lead. Sam Heap was in the second, Lieutenant Tony Ninawa in the third, and Lieutenant Jim Ross in the fourth. And so, 
There was a dirt road chase, the Buffles hunting down the Fapla convoy, driving full tilt along the rutted road. The Buffles each had a mounted 7.62mm Browning machine gun, and they caught up to the Fapla column as it engaged in a heavy battle with the Reiki stopper groups to the north. Meanwhile, Major Eddie Fulun was on board the Bosbok flying above the carnage and directed the Buffles straight towards the enemy, who by now had jumped from their trucks and were scattered and running away on foot. Fapla had somehow turned a situation of strength into weakness and would now pay. Many men were shot down. The others who ran east jumped into the Kubango River. Some were taken by crocodiles. Some drowned. Others managed to make it to the east bank. There was no quarter given, and then came the call that Ferreira was dreading. Captain Muller's body had been found in one of the trenches, lying face down. He'd been shot in the head. The rest of the assault force was still in Zabati, and hand-to-hand fighting continued from trench to trench. Fapla fought gallantly, according to all accounts, but were overcome eventually, and their command structure had collapsed. Then the survivors fled. Mopping up began at 1,400 hours, and a nominal roll call was taken. 13 SADF men were dead, 22 wounded, one corporal and one rifleman were missing in action. Dozens of Fapla bodies were lying about. 12 of their vehicles had been destroyed and burning, but there was no one celebrating. The casualty rate among the South Africans was high. A search for the missing men was ordered, but when they were listed as missing by nightfall, the SADF had to withdraw. The assault force pulled back four kilometres to the southwest into thick bush and stopped to rest for the night. By now, the top brass were swarming about back across the cut line. Word had got out that this foray into Sabati had not gone well at all. SA Army Chief Lieutenant General Constant Fulun flew into Rundu to launch a top-level inquiry about what was happening. The first thing he found out was that 3-2 Battalion were never supposed to attack Savati on their own. High Command had decided that Unita was best placed to lead the assault, with 3-2 Battalion nominated to assist with mortars and the reckeys. Somehow, the messaging went awry. The next day, Unita duly moved into Savati, taking the heavily damaged town at 0900 on May 22nd. Ferreira was still searching for the two men MIA. The South Africans had a rule which is followed by the best professional organisations in the world. No one left behind. So 3-2's Charlie Company set off back to Savati on the 22nd with orders to find the two men MIA no matter what. Unita garrison troops helped and shortly afterwards the bodies of both men were found in dense bush far from the assault area. How they ended up there remains a mystery, but at least they were found. During a follow-up debrief and reading of the documents seized at Sabati, it was clear that Fapla had been expecting an attack for three weeks and had moved heavy arms into the town. They had also been expecting UNITA, so the full-blooded assault by the South Africans had unnerved them. Captured documents showed Sabati held at least 1,060 heavily armed troops, not 300. Final casualty figures were prepared, and they were difficult reading for the SADF. Fifteen troops dead, more than 20 seriously injured, the heaviest casualties that 3-2 Battalion had taken in a single battle in four years of constant fighting. But 550 at Fapla had been killed, hundreds were reported wounded or missing. The SADF had seized 19 FIFA trucks, two star fuel tankers, a complete star mobile workshop and a Land Rover. A Russian-made motorcycle with sidecar, probably a Ural Wolf, was also snatched by 3-2 Battalion's regimental sergeant major, who proudly displayed it back at headquarters, otherwise known as Buffalo. 24 Fapla vehicles had been destroyed, along with a bridge before 3-2 Battalion left Sabati. 
This had been a deadly introduction to the upcoming Operation Skeptic. And so, we must halt and secure the perimeter. Thanks to Geddy, who phoned me this week from his winter fastness about goings-ons, and Richard, who has donated a significant amount towards the podcast costs. I'm utterly amazed at how folks have tried to help in various ways as this series unfolds. So thank you, Richard. Your donation will go towards the podcast and website hosting fees. So now, we move on to Operation Skeptic, which is going to have a few sharp edges for the SADF. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.